As we continue in worship this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to John's Gospel and chapter 2. That's John chapter 2, and our reading will commence there at verse 1. John chapter 2, and starting here at the first verse. The word of our God. On the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May we know his blessing richly under it this morning. Before we come to our text, beloved, as we think about this portion of God's word and everything that has been presented to us in this first chapter, I think it's right for us to step back and make a basic remark. And that remark pertains to how you and I speak of Christ. It might seem a bit by the wayside, but John has been leading us to think about speaking about the glory and thinking about the glory of Christ substantially. What I mean by that is the gospel writer is showing us under divine inspiration that Christ is altogether glorious and he's to be seen so and his glory is to be spoken of as those who have witnessed that glory. To put it in other words, beloved, there is a way of speaking about the glory of Christ that is mere flattery. There's a way of speaking high words, great words about Christ that are nothing less than vapid, flattering speech. John's gospel encourages encourages us to think and to pray that we would know more by experience the glory of Christ in a substantial way. That we would not flatter Christ, but that we would know this glory ourselves. Now, as we come to this portion of God's word, 
you'll notice that the very first verse gives us something of a timestamp. It's the third day. Now, if you're doing the calculations, this is six days since the appearing of the deputations from Jerusalem to John the Baptist. So it's six days since the events that we read of in, in chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. Nearly a week has gone by. And I want you to notice, beloved, that this is a week that's unique to John's gospel. You don't find this week recorded anywhere else in Scripture. None of these events are given to us elsewhere in Scripture. And again, we have to ask the question, why is this so? That is, why are we given these vignettes? Well, as we've looked at the first 14 verses of this text, chapter 1, an answer comes to us rather readily. John is showing us in these six days how it was that men beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This idea of beholding Christ is still preeminent in the text. John is showing us how men beheld Christ, and he shows us that by leading us through this week of experiences. This is why, really, our events that we're taking up today really belong still to the first chapter. We are still thinking about how men beheld Christ. And we'll see that in just a minute. But what is it that's in front of us? What is the narrative that John presents to us? It's a narrative that's familiar, but but allow me to retrace it with you just for a moment. There's a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now, in the ancient world, of course, in the first century, marriages tended, even among the lesser classes, to be days, days long. And so we don't quite know when exactly um, Christ appears to the feast. But the idea is there is a marriage, a great event, and Mary and his disciples are invited. Uh, As you look at verses, uh, well, as you look at verses... um, Apologies there, verses 5 and 8, rather. You'll notice that both Mary and Christ have command over these servants. These servants yield ready obedience. And so the idea that most commentators have in mind is that this marriage was between one of, uh, was, was with one of Mary's relations. Uh, one of Mary's kinsmen uh, was being married. Now, you'll notice here, that at this juncture, six days after the calling, the initial calling of these disciples, you find that Christ is invited with Nathaniel and Philip, Andrew and Peter. And this indicates, of course, the proximity of these men. In fact, if you look at chapter 22, second verse of John's Gospel, you'll find that Cana is actually where Philip and Nathaniel come from. So it's very likely that Christ and his disciples were together in Cana at this point. Now they're called to the marriage feast together. The disciples are already Christ's shadow. In the third verse, you have the crisis. At this marriage feast, Mary, who's perhaps related to either the bridegroom or the bride, comes to Christ and bears the simple report that they have no wine. Now, I want you to notice that in this moment, you have a clear indication that Mary expects that Christ can do something. It's vain for us to try to speculate how she comes to that conclusion, but it's very clear that she already knows 
that this is something that he himself can remedy. I want you to notice Christ's reply. That comes to us in the fourth verse. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, beloved, in our, in our translations, this comes out to us rather harshly, especially in our culture. Uh, we need to understand that this is a rebuke, but it's a very, very light rebuke. Uh, the name woman, for instance, is not necessarily diminutive. Uh, Christ, you remember on the cross, when he's speaking to Mary, affectionately refers to her as woman as she entrusts her to John's care. This is not a heavy rebuke, as some have thought it is. The sense of it is this. Why are you telling me this? And the original reads something like, I know this as well as thee. Why are you telling me this? I know this as well as you do. And then that second aspect of this rebuke comes in the words, mine hour is not yet come. And the sense there is, Christ here is demonstrating that he is not acted because the timing was not right. Uh, there, is no, there is no statement here that should lead us to think that Christ is telling Mary he will not do something. The sense in the original is he's telling her why he has done nothing up to this point. It was not due for him at this juncture to intervene. And so here the rebuke really turns to Mary, in which it answers her challenge both to Christ's knowledge and to the timing of his activity. Christ knows the situation. Mary need not tell him. And he's not acted because the timing was not right. But in verse 5, Mary leaves this very light rebuke. And she goes to the servants and she says very pointedly, simply do whatsoever he tells you. It's a staggering response. It's a submission in one sense to the rebuke that Christ tenders to her, and also it is a continued exhibition of Mary's faith. She believes that he will, he may act. In verse 6, we're told here that there are six water pots used for purification, and they're very, very large. It's vain again for us to speculate just how large at this point. And in verses 8 and 9, all that we're told in this juncture is that Christ instructs, instructs these men to empty the water pots and then to fill them full. And then after filling them, to take the water to the governor of the feast. Uh, the governor of the feast, we could see that as either the head servant, we could see that as a kind of master of ceremonies, we could see that as some have even in the past as something of, of a representative of the synagogue to make sure all things in the marriage were done decently and in order. However we see it, the, the wine is to be tendered to him first. And then we're told that the marriage of feast, when he had tasted, sorry, the ruler of the feast, when he had tasted the water that was made wine, and he knew not whence it was, he says, thou hast kept the good wine until now, etc., etc. And what John's gospel is doing for us here is he's showing us in three ways that this is a genuine miracle. First of all, I want you to notice that it's the servants who fill the wash pots, not Christ. He doesn't touch any, any of, any of the receptacles. The second element of this is that the servants themselves bore it to the feast. There was no opportunity for Christ to intervene or any of his disciples to intervene and to change that which was carried from the pot to the governor. 
And finally, the governor of the feast, the ruler of the feast, is a man who could adjudicate, a man who would have experienced many such occasions and could determine whether or not this was diluted wine, whether this was a fabrication, or whether this was good wine, in fact. And so all of these things remind us that this is, in fact, a genuine miracle performed by our Savior. But as we come to our main theme this morning, I want you to notice that this is a unique miracle. John records for us that this is the first miracle that was done, and it was done in Cana of Galilee, verse 11. And we're also told, and this is somewhat unique as well, not absolutely unique, but somewhat, that there were few who knew who performed the miracle. As you go throughout Christ's earthly ministry, you'll notice that multitudes would often see that Christ had performed miracles. This is, of course, how Christ gained the following that he did prior to the eclipse of his ministry at the end. When you look at this text, it does seem rather strange. Only the servants, only the disciples, and presumably Mary, knew who had performed the miracle. And that leads us to ask the question, why? Why this miracle? The apologetic value is quite small then. If you consider that servants at that stage were, were of course, in society regarded as, as merely property. Uh, we, we could go into the status of a slave or a servant um, at some, some later stage. But generally speaking, the, the servant, his testimony was very lightly regarded. If you go another step further, Mary's testimony as a woman would have been very lightly regarded as well. And these disciples, these were men who occupied some of the lowest classes of society. The apologetic value of this moment seems quite small. So so why this miracle? And why record it for us in this way? The scriptures answer that for us decisively in verse 11. It is to show that here Christ manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Beloved, that is the purpose of this miracle, and it's recording for us, to show us how Christ manifested his glory and to show its effect, that the faith that these disciples had already exercised was augmented, was encouraged by what they saw. And so our theme, very briefly this morning, beloved, is just this, that the works of Christ manifest his excellency. The works of Christ manifest his excellency. And I want us to see that in three ways. I want us to see, first of all, how the prerogative of Christ is seen. I want us to see how his power is exhibited. And finally, I want us to see how both of these things demonstrate his preeminence. And so first, his prerogative. He comes to us in the rebuke that he tenders to Mary. Woman, mine hour is not yet come. And again, this shows us that Mary's, Mary's approach to Christ was with something of a tacit complaint. It's almost as though Mary comes to the Savior and says, Why hast thou done nothing? Seeing that her relations potentially were were on the verge of of being embarrassed. Why have you done nothing up to this point to allow these things to go empty and, and perhaps bring shame to the family? Christ's answer is simply, It was not time. It was not time. He says, first of all, it was not his hour. And in the scriptures, of course, as you read throughout 
the gospel accounts, this refers to the time decreed in various ways. It does not only refer to the time of his crucifixion, but it refers to a time decreed. And it also, it also sets before us this idea that it was Christ's hour in a special sense. That is, the hour of his exhibition had not yet come. It was not time at this stage in the feast, at this stage in the history, for these works to be manifest. And so Christ has not acted. And beloved, this demonstrates that the Son of God, the Son of God, he works the divine will, pointedly, and not Mary's. He works the divine will, not the will of men. And Mary here is reminded of that fact. She is to submit to the time decreed. And beloved, that is something that we have to learn from this text ourselves. In a very general sense, Christ exhibits his glory by working according to the divine will. None, even the closest relation in the flesh, could induce Christ to work contrary to his decree, the will of his Father. If we consider Christ as the divine Son, beloved, we understand, of course, that his Father's will is his. Uh, And so when we read, as we do in Job, these words, He taketh away, who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, what doest thou? That refers equally to all three persons of the blessed and adorable Trinity. When we find Nebuchadnezzar saying the same thing in Daniel 4, none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? This also refers to the divine Son. And beloved, when we sing as we do in Psalm 115, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Again, beloved, this refers to the one divine will. Ontologically, as the Son, he has one will with the Father and the Spirit. And so it is his prerogative as God that he will not transgress. He will demonstrate this. And even though in the economy of redemption, as Christ, as Redeemer, submitted himself to his Father's will, we're not supposed to see there that the divine will in Christ was somehow distinct from the Father. The two were one. But I want you to note, beloved, at this juncture, this contradicts Mary's expectation. All of this that we've said is true. And all of this evinces very clearly that that this is God, the Son, and, and none, none will tell him to do that which is contrary to his will. He works his will in his time. And as Redeemer, he submits himself to his Father. But surely there's something in Mary's response that is instructive for us. As she's confronted with this statement of Christ's absolute prerogative, as she's confronted with a statement that, though, that Christ will act contrary even to her expectation, Mary's response when she turns around and she goes to the servants and, and doesn't complain about the rebuke, but very simply tells the servants to do whatsoever he commands. Surely, beloved, you and I have a picture of a right response to the prerogative of Christ and his work. Mary submits to this rebuke clearly. There is no complaint. And on top of that, she does so believingly. 
And as Calvin remarks, I think judiciously, she even leaves Christ's rebuke with a tacit understanding that he will act. In this case, beloved Mary shows us an example of someone quite like the Syrophoenician woman. Though rebuffed by Christ, this does not induce despair. Though Christ will act contrary to how Mary might expect or desire, it doesn't induce her to faithlessness. She submits patiently to the rod, to the correction, and entrusts the matter to Christ. In this way, she's like Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Beloved, all of Christ's dealings with his people ought to be so received. It's right for us to submit and to submit believingly. This is the prerogative of Christ exhibited so very clearly. But then I want you to consider, secondly, his power. His power. Now, in the text, you'll notice that the only moment of activity that you have from Christ is given to us here when he says to the servants, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. That's all that we're told. Christ he, he, doesn't, he doesn't pray over the receptacles. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't touch them at all. He simply says the words to the servant, draw the water and carry to the governor the feast. All of these things are then accomplished through intermediaries. Christ touches nothing, says nothing over the elements. The thing is worked only... By his will. It's a staggering, staggering moment. You'll find a few instances throughout the Gospels that are similar. But it's striking that the first miracle that Christ performs is such a clear picture that the will of Christ makes something so. He wills it, and it is. Now, beloved, as you think about this text in relation to the first chapter, you can't come away from the third verse of chapter 1 without thinking of our text. We're there, we're told, all things were made by him, that is the logos, the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. The idea, beloved, here is that Christ is demonstrating that as the divine Son. He is still creator. The one who willed all things into being, out of nothing, stands at the marriage feast in Cana. He wills, and it is so. This is a clear picture of the power of Christ. And beloved, this is part of the way in which Christ exhibits his glory. He does so by demonstrating his omnipotence, again as the divine son. As the Apostle reminds us in Colossians 1, we're supposed to think of him thus. By him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's the Christ of whom we read. That's the Christ whom the disciples beheld. The Christ who works this miracle in Cana. The Christ who is creator. It's an exhibition of his glory. Beloved, I don't know about you, but that's, that's something that we don't hear very often today, I don't think. 
you and I, we live, we move, and we breathe in this theater of God's created glory. This theater that exhibits to us the majesty of our God. And yet the apostle would remind us that this is supposed to lead us to think about the one through whom all of these things consist. The divine son, who is also redeemer. That's the point of Colossians 1. And it's the very thing that this moment in John 2 reminds us of. Beloved, you and I live, we move, and we have our being in a world that exhibits to us the glory of our triune God. And that, through the work of the Son. We can go a step further. Beloved, here you and I are reminded that the work of redemption is predicated on the fact that he is the divine, omnipotent Son. We see that in Ezekiel 1 very clearly. The prophet there says that he saw above the firmament that there was over their heads the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man upon it. What's so staggering about this picture is that Ezekiel says that this this throne that represents the sovereignty of God exercising the divine will all throughout the realms, not only in Israel, but even in the realms of captivity and exile, that on that throne there was one like the Son of Man. You see, beloved, you and I, we behold the omnipotence of Christ. We behold this kind of power exhibited when we see God working providentially for his people. One like the Son of Man sitting on the throne, ruling for the good of his church over all things. Ezekiel goes on to tell us the one that he saw that was like the Son of Man on the throne. He also says this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The one and the two are the same. The glory of Christ, the Redeemer, is predicated on the fact that he is the divine son, creator God. And we can go a step further, beloved. This, this text should lead us to think about the omnipotence of Christ. And surely that omnipotence is most conspicuous, most clear in the work of redemption. As men, we, we can say that we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. We can marvel at the works of our God in creation. But is it not a greater marvel to us to see those who are created in Christ Jesus unto good works? Is that not a greater act of omnipotence, a clearer demonstration of divine glory? Surely it is, but we'll come back to that, God willing, in a moment. We see then the prerogative of Christ exhibited here. We see his power manifested, but there's something, a third element that we can't miss either. And it's the preeminence of Christ. The marriage feast concludes with the statement of the ruler saying to the bridegroom, thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now I said to you already that this is the third evidence that this miracle is in fact miraculous, um, that this has been performed um, by the divine power and without intermediary. But is that all? Is that all that the statement carries to us? 
Friend, as I ask that question, I'd say that it's dangerous, it's an abuse of Scripture to say either too much or too little. And there are extremes we have to avoid when asking such a question in this place. But I'd submit to you that there is something more than just an evidence of the miraculousness of this moment that's being communicated to us. I want you to just recall what we found in chapter 1 for a moment. You remember what Philip says. He says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Now what is Philip saying? He's saying, this is the one, the singular one, that we've been anticipating. You remember as we thought about this, this is quite an affectionate way of speaking of Christ. That all of the scriptures, as it were, are centered on him. He is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Take that with what John says in verse 17. That's John the Baptist. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember months ago our comments on that text, you remember what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying that the substance of the covenant of grace has come in Christ. Moses, like John the Baptist, could be a minister in external things. But Christ was a minister of the covenant in its substance. And we can go even a step further. As you think about what John says there, he says, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Well, if you remember verse 14, just a few verses beforehand, we've already been treated to grace and truth. We've already been told that that was seen. In verse 14 we're told that they beheld his glory, that he was full of grace and truth. Now, friend, if we hold all of those things together, what are we supposed to see? We're supposed to see what you find in verse 11 of our text. That in this moment, the disciples beheld his glory. That is, they saw the grace and the truth of Christ, and his disciples believed on him. Now, beloved, what is the grace and the truth of Christ that was seen? If we hold what John has said to us throughout the first chapter together, it is that Christ exhibits clearly that he is the substance of the covenant. Why why is that important? Beloved, think for a moment what John has just told us. The disciples stood there and and they, they watched as these vessels for ritual purification These vessels that symbolized the burden that, as the apostles said, their fathers and they themselves could not bear, were filled with water. And Christ turns them into wine. Now, why is that interesting? Well, beloved, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because in this moment, first of all, these vessels would have never had wine to begin with. And secondly... Throughout the scriptures, the new covenant and the consummation of redemption is likened to a feast with wine. And wine in abundance. Beloved, I don't think that the disciples could watch these symbols of the old covenant. These symbols of the external forms of the covenant. 
be turned into something that is, is not a burden, but a delight and, and a symbol of abundant joy to the marriage feast and the guests, without thinking that this is in fact the one who is the covenant himself, who is grace and truth incarnate. That's not allegorizing. If we've been paying attention to John 1 the entire time, grace and truth relates to the fact that this is the Christ who brings the substance of the covenant. Indeed, who is its substance? In this moment, you and I see a glimpse, as it were, of the unsearchable riches of Christ. In in this moment, you and I get a glimpse, a symbolic picture of the breadth and length and depth and height. And and we're, we're, we're instructed even in this moment to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. You and I are reminded in this moment that the law, that the law having a shadow of good things to come, did not have the very image or substance of the things. That they were an example and shadow of heavenly things. But the shadow of things to come, they were nonetheless. But what was the substance? Beloved, in this moment, the disciples learned that the substance, as Paul tells us in Colossians 2.17, was Christ. The law, these washpots could make one ceremonially clean. Christ can make the heart glad and fill it with abundance. The Lord in Isaiah 42 reminds us that Christ himself is the substance of the covenant, is the covenant itself. The Lord says that he will give him for a covenant of the people, a light of the Gentiles. In our text, beloved, we see that. We see that clearly. We see then the very thing that we read in Isaiah 25. Christ is the one who gives a feast to his people. He is the one who gives joy. He is the one who supplies the, the, the wine with the leaves, the, the meat and the marrow, because he himself is the substance itself. He is the feast of fat things. So as we close and we apply this, beloved, we're told in this text that the apostles, sorry, the disciples, rather, they believed on him after seeing this exhibition of the prerogative, the power, and the preeminence of Christ. But you could ask the question, did they not already believe? Did we not already encounter believing men at the end of chapter 1? And the answer, of course, is in the affirmative. They did believe. But these men, their faith was confirmed. It was confirmed after they had believed. And that's always the order of it, beloved. Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, Peter, these men already believed in Christ. But when did they receive the greatest confirmation of it to date? Only after they believed. There are so many who want to reverse that order. I will believe if he gives me a confirmation first. That's not the order at all. The disciples of old did not enjoy that order, even though Christ dwelt among them. The order is to believe, and then to be blessed with greater confirmations. 
But friend, this does raise a question of examination. Here you and I, we have a sign that's to show us so very potently that this is the Word incarnate. This is the divine Son who's come. And by the way, this is not a sign simply for the disciples. It's recorded that we might believe. John tells us that. And so the question is, do we believe? Do we really believe this morning? Do you believe that the incarnate Son of God, 2,000 years ago, walked the earth, possessed of all of that inherent and eternal glory that he had, Intrinsically, that he took upon himself the form of a servant. That he did so to redeem his people. There are many who know this account. There are many who know this account who do not believe. Will the disciples rise against you on the last day? And say, the tokens were already there. You ought to have seen him as he was. But friend, there is something here it would be remiss for me not to mention, and that belongs to the comfort that this must be to the people of God. I want you to think for a moment of this miracle, as John tells us, as it is the first miracle that Christ performs. It's the first miracle that he performs. And, beloved, think for a moment again just how few bore witness to it. Just the servants, just the disciples, Mary. And it begs the question, why? Why? Well, we answer that as we ought to by saying that Christ, everything that he did, he did first and foremost for the glory of God. And then, subordinated to that, it was to perform his mission, namely to work redemption. But you and I need to remember that Christ chose, in the council of eternity, the Father and the Son in the councils of redemption, chose this moment. A marriage feast in Cana to be the first exhibition of his miraculous power. He chose a moment that would provide joy for guests at a lower class wedding. A moment that he would prevent momentary dishonor from Mary's relations to be the exhibition of his power. I want you to notice, beloved, here that you and I are treated to a picture of how deeply condescended The mercy of our God is. He chose this moment that seems so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. It seems so small when you look at the compass of the world to be an exhibition of his power. Beloved, here surely you and I are supposed to see that his mercy and his condescension are unfathomable. He chose this to communicate to his people his sovereignty, his power, and his preeminence. And so staggeringly, beloved, 
He chose this to be an exhibition of His glory, but but you remember that it's in the glory that is in is it is in His face that the glory of the Triune God is exhibited. And so, if this demonstrates His condescended mercy as the Son, you and I are supposed to see here how deep and condescending the mercy of our Triune God really is. He cares even for these things. You and I are called then to meditate much on the works of Christ. The Christ who is there. The Christ whom we've read and meditated on this morning is a Christ who is alive and well. A Christ who is the same as he was in the first century. And so you and I are to be a people who labor to see him by faith as he is that we might praise him, rest upon him as we ought, that we might follow the disciples who, when Christ manifested his glory, they believed. May we be such people, and for his sake. Amen.